once again. I'm so grateful to get to stand in this moment. And five years in to the journey of Auburn Community Church, there have been so many moments where I have expected this to become easier. What do I mean by this? I mean the the process of you guys coming in, sitting down with your Bibles and expecting me to take a passage of scripture and apply it to this moment in our church and this moment in our lives. I expected somehow for experience to make the Monday through Saturday easier, and it just seems to be getting more complicated and more difficult, if I could just be honest with you. But I'm grateful for it because I woke up today after a week of struggling with the message I'm about to preach to you. And I just felt this sense of freedom, I would say authority, that God has given me. Of like, you've, you've done the work, you've cultivated the soil, you've done everything you know how to do, but now I'm going to bring the part of it that you can't do on your own, which is really the most decisive part. And I'm going to fill you with my spirit, and I'm going to say what I want to say to my people. So today might feel like God's been reading your mail. It might feel like this is a sermon that you wish you heard 25 years ago. It might feel like things could have been different if you applied this all along. But I believe in every season of life, every age and stage, this word is intended to meet you right where you are. And I believe what we're going to encounter today is the obstacle between where we are and living out so many of the God-sized dreams in our lives. We started a series called Dreamer last week, and it is not a series about just dreaming big dreams. It's about the collision of God-sized dreams with daily frustrating struggles. So number one, we want to have a God-sized vision for our lives. What does that mean? That means I want you to put your hope in a resurrected Savior so much so that you actually believe that there is a life possible this side of heaven that can only be explained by God. Like if Jesus is who he says he is, I don't want to live a life that's explainable in the natural I don't want people to be able to look at my life and go, okay, well, he did this, and he made this choice, and then this happened, and then this unfolded. No, I want the Spirit of God to breathe on my life and for it to be said, what happened through his life, what happened through that church, that was impossible. Like, God had to be the one who came through and did that. And I believe that's possible when you align your life with the person of Jesus. I believe that American cultural Christianity the other ACC, I believe that has no place in the church today. There's some kind of a spin on the American dream, health, wealth, Jesus will help me live the life I always dreamed about. No, that's not what we're talking about. We did a message last Sunday called Living the Dream where we looked at the life of Joseph and we talked about a lot of times we make our dreams these destinations that we want to arrive at and go, okay, now I'm living the dream. But that's a miserable way to live because in the space between here and there, you're just going to be frustrated and disappointed. And even if you got there today, you would be even more frustrated and disappointed by how depressing it is to get what you thought you wanted and find out you didn't want it. And that's the story of so many people who chase the broken dream that this culture has to offer. No, no, no. We're talking about God-sized dreams received from God like Joseph did, but then lived out in the most random, painful struggle possible. Joseph gets a dream. God's going to use you to impact the world. 
your brothers are going to bow down to you. The sun, the moon, the stars will bow down to you. Joseph, you're going to live a big life. He got this dream in Genesis chapter 37 at the age of 17. And immediately after he receives the dream, everything turns into a nightmare. That's how it'll be. Because you got to understand, God's priority for God-sized dreams in your life is not to get you where you think you want to go. God's priority is to move in and through you on the journey. And so while you make it about the destination, living the dream, God wants to make it about a relationship today. And God's growing you into the image of Jesus every single day. He was taking full ownership of Joseph's heart. I don't have time to re-preach that whole sermon, but I kind of want to. You can find it on our podcast or on YouTube because we're filming sermons now. Isn't that awesome? Um, I want to preach part two, and I'm going to give you the title, and it's going to make no sense. It'll come back up later in this sermon. Part two of Dreamer is titled, Thank You, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Could you look at somebody next to you and say, thank you for sitting next to me. Thank you for sitting next to me. Let's be grateful, y'all. And together at the 1145 service, if you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up all over this room. Hold it up, hold it up. Love it, love it, love it. We're going for it this week. If you are unavailable... If you are unavailable relationally, you're married, you're in a relationship, or you don't want to participate, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. Everybody else, hold it up. Hold it up. I'm seeing a lot of them. Our, our camera guy still has his Bible in the air. Jeremiah, it didn't work out at the 8. There were a lot of people at the 10. Still, no one biting, but I see you, bro. I see you holding it up all over this place. And now everybody turn with me to the first book in your Bible. Genesis chapter 39, so awesome. For those of you who are new, I enjoy playing the role of matchmaker. And last week at the 7 o'clock, things get a little bit crazy at the 7, I, I legitimately started pairing people off. So I was like, you and her, like this should align. You guys meet after the service. So be careful if you come to the 7. Hey, tonight at the 7 is actually going to be a worship night. I don't know if you knew that. So we wanted the seven to have its own special feel to it, and most of the time the seven will be a fourth service, but there's some days where we're like, man, we just need to sing and give thanks to God together. So tonight is all worship. You should come back for it. It's going to be really, really cool. We're in Genesis chapter 39, and we're going to pick up with Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, resold into Egypt, and that's where we'll find him in Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Your dreams never look like the way you thought they were going to look when you received it. God's got something else for Joseph. He's in the home of a man named Potiphar. I'm going to read 20 verses. It's quite a bit. And some of you who have never heard this story are going to be shocked by what I'm about to read. And some of you who've already looked there in your Bible, you're like, I know what's coming in this one. This is the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Look at this. Genesis chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. 
From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. I thought some single ladies might amen that, but okay, it's fine. It's fine. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. She's... Not wasting any time. Wow. I'm creeped out reading it. Verse 8. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Sometimes it's not enough to stand against temptation. Sometimes you got to remove it altogether. He he wasn't just saying no to the temptation. He was avoiding her actively. Verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Now, every time I get to preach a story like this, I have to keep in mind that there are people within the sound of my voice who have heard this story, who know this story, and who grew up hearing stories like this all the time. But I just want to remind our church that that's about half of ACC. The other half is a group of people who are looking down at their Bibles right now, or they didn't bring a Bible, and they're reading it on the screen, and they're going... Wait, what? That's in the Bible? And you're sitting there like, oh, yeah, cool, yeah, I know the story. Joseph and what, what, desperate housewives? What, is this the Bible? Is, are you serious? And I only say that to remind you that we are loaded with brand new believers who have never actually been discipled in what it means to know the Bible and have a real relationship with God. And I think A lot of times when you come in and out of church, it's easy to see it like, oh, they're good. They don't need me. When the real story of ACC is the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need people who know the scripture so well that they can actually sit across the table from somebody and walk them through a story in the Bible and go, this is what this means. This is who Jesus is. And we need that more than we actually need another sermon. And so there's people freaking out right now. We did a baptism one year, and right after we did a baptism, I preached on Jonah 
I looked at some of the people who got baptized. They were so bewildered. They were like, I know I got baptized, and I still believe in Jesus. I did not know we believed a guy gets swallowed by a fish. No one told me this was not in the class. Like, I just, I need to wrap my head around this. Those people are all around you right now. They're reading this going, this is not the Bible. This is a TV show. The Bible's fun. The Bible's interesting. But for Joseph, this was not fun. Joseph was sold off into slavery. And it says that when he was sold to Potiphar's house, the Lord was with him. How many of you know that even if you end up in a circumstance or a geographic location that wasn't on your mind and was the result of a wrongdoing, God can still be with you. And God can still meet you there and prosper you there. And so Joseph is working and Potiphar's noticing. He's like, man, the more responsibilities we give to this guy, the better things go. Joseph was a wise investor. Joseph was a good leader. He's leading the staff. The house has run well. I'm sure the house was clean. Potiphar's house was better because Joseph was there. Simply put, I believe that every single place a Christian is employed should be better by their presence alone. Because the Lord is with us, and the Lord is in us. And the Lord is using Joseph in a worldly place like Egypt, and Potiphar's going, give him more responsibility. In fact, just give him the whole house. I'll just think about what I want to eat today, and he can run things better than I can. The only thing in the house that doesn't belong to Joseph is Potiphar's wife, and rightfully so. Well, Joseph, good-looking, young guy, talented, she notices him. And for whatever reason... There is no courtship. There is no passing notes. It's just straight up one day, come to bed with me. Wait, what? Um, And then Joseph's response. We're going to get into the fullness of his response later, but I love that he tries to remove the temptation completely until he's in a scenario where there's no way out other than running. And for the second time in Joseph's life, his cloak is taken from him, and he is wrongfully taken to another place. The Old Testament is not a bunch of stories about random people before Jesus came. The Old Testament is about Jesus. Joseph's coat of many colors stripped from him, and he's sold off. Joseph's cloak taken by a woman who falsely accuses him. This looks like Jesus, whose robe was taken from him when he was crucified. And if you're reading this and you're like, Joseph, you're friends with Potiphar. Just tell him the truth. Tell him you didn't do it. No, no, no. This is ancient Egypt. There, there is no system for testimony to kind of weigh, okay, is she lying? Like, let's do a DNA test. Like, no, 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 no. That's, that's not an option here. Joseph is a Hebrew slave. He's wrong. In fact, I'm shocked that Potiphar didn't just have him killed, throws him into a prison where Pharaoh's prisoners are kept, and now Joseph is left to wonder once again, what happened to the dream? I had this dream, and things got worse for me, and then they were getting better, but now they're just getting worse. What happened to the dream? I'll tell you what happened to the dream. The dream was being tested in this moment. This moment in Joseph's life was called the temptation or testing of a dream. You need to know this in the scriptures. Whenever you see the word temptation, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Like when we read temptation, we think of like desire, like, I want that, but I can't have that, and so i got to say no, because I, 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 my flesh wants that, and i got to say no. That's, that's not actually what the word temptation means in the Bible. The word temptation means testing. It's really an opportunity, if you will, for the dream to come to full fruition. Joseph must face testing. And Scripture interprets Scripture. It's not God with a clipboard testing someone going, let's see how he does. 
This is the test of a God-sized dream through the character of a man named Joseph. Now, if you lost me, you need to look up here and do not miss what I'm about to say. The enemy of your dreams is not the opportunities that you think you need. The enemy of your dreams is always the attack on your character, period. So when Joseph's being tested, what's really happening is the dream is up for grabs, and too many of us, when we think about God-sized dreams and we think about having a vision for our life that's, that's huge, we think all we need is for God to provide the right opportunities to get where we're going. But actually, most of the opposition that you face isn't going to be to stop you to get from where you want to go. Most of the opposition that you're going to face is going to come from within. It's going to be on the ground called character. It's called integrity. Why? Because you have a very real enemy, Satan, the evil one, who's not necessarily trying to keep you from your dreams. This is going to scare some of you. Some of you, the enemy would love for you to prosper down every road that you want to go down. He would love for you to climb the ladder. He would love for you to be exalted. He would love for you to go to the most influential place because he knows if he can get you to compromise from within in your character, it's just going to be a bigger fall when you come down and bring others with you. Some of you are so loaded with talent and ability. Some of you are going down roads that you think, man, accomplishing my dreams just looks like getting to this place. And if you get to that place, but you haven't allowed Jesus to become your everything in this space, that place won't last. You won't sustain. And every adult in the room who's like, man, this feels like a little bit of a young person's message. We've been saying this entire series that dreamer is most of all for those who are older. It was a 92-year-old man at our 8 a.m. service in tears because he had discovered for the very first time that God was not done with his dreams this morning. If you're still breathing, God is not done. Do not tune me out because this sounds like something that's projected toward your future. This is something for everybody right here and right now. The testing, the attack on your dream, the attack on the God-sized dream for your life is not on keeping you from getting where you want to go. It's on your character from within. Why? Because Satan always attacks identity over activity. He always attacks your identity more than he attacks your activity. When Jesus was tempted or tested, same word, Satan did not mix up the lies that he tried to tell Jesus. Told the same one three times. So it wasn't, hey, Jesus, I don't really know if you're going to have the strength to face what you're about to face. Are you sure you're able? Are you sure you're capable? No, 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 because that's just surface stuff. He gets to the root because he knows everything I taught you last week. He knows that God's dream for your life has very little to do with the destination you're going to end up in and more to do with you becoming like Jesus today. And if you become like Jesus, what will you discover? Your identity in Christ. And so what does he question Jesus saying? If you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. It's all a question of, are you really who God said you are? Twisting God words, God's words so Jesus would wonder, oh, well, I don't really know. This doesn't really feel like what God said. And Jesus, in the moment of testing, stands against it with the word of God confidently and claims his rightful identity. And I believe today... Our dream is always on the line where there are people who have compromised their character 
and so compromise their identity in Christ. Our tendency in this room, you need to hear this. Our tendency is to compromise from within and believe that it will change nothing about the future. This is what sin does. Sin gives you an offer, an opportunity for some level of satisfaction in the immediate. And what sin will never show you is the ultimate cost. So if you bite on what you want now, instead of holding out for what you want most, you'll always in the long run go, if I would have known that's what this would have cost, I never would have done this. If you're tempted and you can see all that's at stake, you can see what will happen in generations to come, you can see what you'll miss out on in God's hopes and dreams for your life, you would never walk into sin. And I can promise you Adam and Eve would not have eaten that apple, ever. But what does sin do? It blinds us to the consequences. It says, it's not really going to cost you, and if you really are God's child, and so our identity gets compromised. If you compromise in the area of character, it leads to shame, where in the long run, you never really feel confident about whether or not you are God's child. And here's where we're going today. There is no shame this side of heaven that will make you question your identity in Christ quite like the shame of sexual sin. None like it. All sin will cause you to question, but none like sexual sin. That's why scripture says that a man who sins sexually sins against his own body. It's more destructive than any other sin. But it's not just destructive in it affecting your brain and affecting your biology, it's destructive in the shame that sticks and lasts for years to come where you used to be confident in who God says you are and now you're wondering whether or not you can even be a servant in God's house. Y'all, we sang a whole song about the prodigal son. The father's arms are open wide. And I got up here and said, you have a heavenly father in heaven who wants to welcome you in today. Do you know the people who couldn't receive that? the people who have the deepest levels of sexual brokenness right now. Because when the prodigal son met his father, we love to romanticize that story and say, he came home and his father came running and there was a big hug and it was really awesome and we all cry. That's not what happened. The father ran after the son and what did the son say? No, I am not worthy to be called your son identity. I'm not even worthy to be in your family. I shouldn't be here. Why was he so ashamed? It wasn't just that he took the inheritance and left before his father died, basically rendering his dad dead. It wasn't just the distance that he left home. And it wasn't just the financials that he lost, because clearly dad was doing fine without that stuff. It was a sexual sin. We know from the older brother's expression, your son spent all of this on partying and prostitutes. That's why the younger son was like, Dad, I, you're not my dad anymore. And I'm, I get that. I'd be content just to be a servant in your house because I've woken up and I've tasted the food that pigs eat and it would just be better. Am I worthy to be a servant? This is what sexual sin will do to you. And some of you in this room who are older, You don't realize it, but sexual sin has actually neutralized your identity in Christ 
so much so that it's the reason why you are content to sit on the sidelines and tip in church and clap during a worship song and move on with your week during the week. But you'll never really go all in for Jesus again. And it's because you're actually ashamed of stuff that you did that you never really got full healing from. Talk to people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's a lot of brokenness from back in their 20s, from back in their teens, that they never really let God in on. And it's not that they somehow left behind Christianity. It's not that they walked away and said, I don't, I don't consider myself a Jesus follower anymore. It's that they kind of slowly shifted toward the back and said, I'm not going to get as involved as that person or that person because I got this closet. I got this stuff that I don't really know what to do with. And when that brokenness starts wreaking havoc on you, what you don't understand is that it's wreaking havoc on the dream God has for you because God's dreams for your life are so closely connected to you knowing your identity as his child that if you're walking every day so ashamed and so broken, and so wondering, you're never going to step into all God has for you, and Satan wins. I want you to step into the dreams God has for you. I don't want failure to be the thing that defines your story, and that is why this week was brutal for me, because I arrived at a passage of Scripture where all Joseph does is dominate, literally. Guy's a beast. Does nothing wrong. Gets approached, gets tempted, not only says no, gives a great explanation for why he won't, removes the temptation, gets tempted again, flees, only command in the Bible where you're supposed to flee something is flee sexual sin because you're not supposed to try to withstand something that can run you over like a Mack truck. So he's like, I don't need to be in there. Some of y'all need to know, do I need to jump if the apartment's on the second floor? Yeah, if there's bushes. Like, get out of there. Run. Run. You better run, Joseph. But I'm reading this passage, and I'm like, okay. So the message of Joseph is if you overcome these character compromises, if you overcome in regards to purity, then God will make the dream come true. So I'm about to get in front of 3,000 people and say, hey, guys, we gotta, we got to be like Joseph. We're getting killed in this area. And we gotta, we got we to gotta step into this. we got to obey God. And we gotta, got to measure up. And I was just depressed about bringing that message, honestly. Because I know I'm staring into the eyes of 3,000 sexual failures today. And the worst one I know of is the one that I see in the mirror. So it's a great Sunday at ACC where I get us all pumped up in week one. Dreamer, dream big dreams. And then I got to get back in front of you and go, hey, maybe we should stop dreaming because we're not doing this right. And God gave me one of the coolest revelations he's given me in a long time. I felt the Lord gently whisper to me in the silence of my office Miles, Genesis 39 is not after Genesis 37. It's powerful math. It's like, yeah. Because last week I preached through Genesis 37, story of Joseph being sold. And then there's this weird story that happens in 38. And then 39, the narrative picks up. So that's, where I, that's where I picked up the message. And God had me... Take a look at Genesis chapter 38 for a second. 
And if you've never read Genesis 38, the story of a guy named Judah and a woman named Tamar, you'll be shocked. I legitimately can't read it in church because it's not appropriate. You know there's stuff in, in the Bible that you can't read in church? Some of you are like, man, I wish I would have brought my Bible. I'd be looking down at what happened in Judah and Tamar. Here's what I need to tell you. Judah's one of Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers are the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jacob, their father, his name is changed to Israel. 12 sons. Two of the sons are actually Joseph's sons. Some of you have wondered, like, how does 11 sons become 12 tribes? I think it's because of the 11 disciples who had to add one when Judas dropped off. I think that's a little bit of the foreshadowing that we see. But two of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, actually become uh, tribes. But the, the big tribe, like there's good tribes, like Levi, Benjamin, pretty cool. Reuben, he was the firstborn. But there's one guy who's like the ultimate tribe, Judah. Who's, in, who, who's born in the tribe of Judah? David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Jesus. This is the tribe, the elite of the elite of the Judah. And this is, this is not a tribe. This is Judah, the guy. Like the man, Judah. This is the beginning of Jesus' line. Genesis chapter 38 is the story about how Judah hires a prostitute who he doesn't know is actually his daughter-in-law. And he gets her pregnant, and their son begins the line that leads to Jesus. Miles, Genesis 39 is not after Genesis 37. This is, this is one of the weirdest narrative breaks in the Bible. Because you're tracking, Joseph sold, he's in Egypt, stop, Judah and Tamar. Pick up Genesis 39. Why is it like that? The narrator is very intentional. To have a moment of sexual failure that is so bad and so shameful, followed by a moment of sexual triumph and overcoming back to back, that is not an accident. And it is because the Bible is a narrative that is unfolding before our eyes and I got good news for a lot of you today. The Bible does not end in Genesis. The story goes on and Judah becomes a nation. And a nation births king after king after king. And there's a king of kings who is born. He's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. And his name is Jesus. And when he was tempted, he didn't fall away like his forefather Judah did. He stayed true throughout all of it. But then he was crucified like a criminal so that people like you and people like me who have acted like Judah don't have our dreams taken away because we're sexually broken people. We can actually see all of our dreams come to fruition despite our failure and despite our shame because here's your message guys thank you Jesus he did it for us this is the gospel so I'm sitting there this is so powerful I'm sitting there and I'm like oh thank you Jesus it's not the message is not guys be like Joseph so much better the message is if you've acted like Judah the dream is not over and if you want to be like Joseph, the power is available. That's Jesus. If you need forgiveness, if you need grace, it's there for all the Judas in the room. And if you feel like Joseph's standard is unrealistic, it's because it is. You need the life of Christ on the inside of you, and it's available. Here's how I know that. You've got to turn there. We're going to put this on the screen. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Do not miss this. 
It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Hebrews calls Jesus the great high priest. Who's the high priest? The high priest in the Old Testament was the one who offered sacrifices for sins. The cool thing about Jesus is that he's not just the high priest, he's also the sacrifice. And it says he's able to empathize with our weaknesses. Some of you think that Jesus can't sympathize with you. He doesn't understand the weight of what I'm under. He never sinned. Okay, who understands the weight of something? Somebody who faltered under it or somebody who lifted it? Jesus can empathize with your weaknesses because in his strength, he put it on his shoulders and defeated it forever. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now, this is insane. And what I am about to say, even if you're too ashamed to react, is going to make you do backflips on the inside. If you are in Christ today, the Bible tells us that Jesus gave us the righteousness of God in exchange for our sins. He became sin, we become sons and daughters. That means that no matter how dark your past in sexual brokenness today, no matter how many things you've got on the list, no matter how many websites are there, no matter how many relationships are there, no matter how many secrets are there, no matter how much is there, before the throne of God in heaven, you are seen with a perfect record sexually in the sight of God if you are in Christ. That's a big deal. And that's a big deal if you're anything like me and you're carrying stuff not a lot of people know about, and you're going, no way. And I'll take your lack of enthusiasm as a revealer of how heavy that is hitting. Because nobody wants to go, that's such a big deal for me. That's such a big deal. (laughs) He doesn't see any of it. Like, none of it? Really? Really? None of it? Nope. If you are in Christ, zero. I'm going to talk about that preface, in Christ, in a second. Feel that. Some of you are here and you're uncomfortable with the message I'm preaching right now. Are you saying that grace is so radical That God right now in heaven does not see any of the sexual dysfunction in this room of people who are his sons and daughters. If you have a problem with that, I need you to know this. That is exactly what I am saying. Yes, I am saying that. But I'm also saying that God's grace is so good that your time of need isn't just when you need forgiveness for the past it's also when you need power in the present. So when's your time of need where you need mercy and grace? Always. And I don't just need God to tell me that it's okay that I did that. I don't want to live like that anymore. And he doesn't want that for me because he's got something better for his sons and daughters. Good news. Thank you, Jesus. Empowerment is here. We are not Old Testament Israel. We are the New Testament people of God with the spirit of Christ on the inside of us. We do not have to live broken and burdened and in chains anymore. It's over. And the dream is actually alive if Jesus is alive on the inside of you. So that's why the message is just, thank you, Jesus. Christianity can be summed up 
with all of your effort, all of your trying, all of your shame, and all of your righteousness dropped in a bag of trash and then open-handed gratitude that says, thank you for doing what I can't do. And when you get your life into that position, you're not only going to have grace for the past, you're going to have power in this moment to live different. And so what we've actually got to learn how to do is to stay in that gratitude, to stay in that lane. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This is a really heavy message. Can you say thank you, Jesus? Because I know you want to, especially if that's true about you and it's true about me. Here's how you win the war on the inside of you. I got two points and then we're out of here. Thank you, Jesus. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to stir up gratitude in your heart. The ultimate weapon God has given a Christian against lust and every other struggle is gratitude. So if you're here today... And you're like, I'm not really struggling with the whole sexual temptation thing. And I don't really have any brokenness from my past that I need healing from. And I don't, first of all, nice to meet you, Jesus. And um, second of all, gratitude expands across every issue. I have found in my life in 2019, I came into this year, my word for the year was presence. This has been powerful. But I feel like God's replaced that word with gratitude. If I have a thankful heart on the inside, there is no temptation that seizes me that has any chance. But gratitude must get stirred up. You need to be reminded that God still loves you. And you need to revel in that. You need to sing about that. You need to talk about that. You need to feel that. And you need to stir it up like you stir up your coffee. How do I do that? Well, I'm not here to give you a step-by-step kind of method for having a relationship with God, because that's not how it works. It is relational. But I think Joseph gives us a little bit of a hint. So Joseph's got a lot of cool methods and strategies, but when you read this, I guarantee you, you don't see Joseph's main method. So you read it, you're like, okay, his method is remove the temptation, avoid her. I believe in that. Some of you need to do that. His method is run. Some of you need to do that. But his, his real, real message is gratitude. Watch this, verse 7. After a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, but he refused. Watch this explanation, y'all. With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Do you see how grateful he is? He's like, I can't do that because I got this. I got this whole house. I got all this stuff. I've been blessed, not just by Potiphar, but by God. See, Joseph understands something that David understands in Psalm 51. It's against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned. When you start to see your sin as a sin against your sovereign patron, God, the one who gifted you in the first place, you'll start to understand that the sin, when you sin sexually, it's really a sin of ingratitude. It's really rooted in envy, honestly, because envy is the opposite of gratitude. Don't you think it's weird that in the Ten Commandments it says um, that we shouldn't covet? And it actually says you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife. See, envy and sexual sin go hand in hand. It's when you and I are not grateful for what we do have that we look to what we don't have. 
But when I'm reveling in gratitude for what I do have, namely a right relationship with my heavenly father, I don't even have the space for this temptation. Joseph is not moved by this because he's like, I'm so thankful for this position. I'm so thankful for my God. I'm so thankful for where I am. Like, yeah, that would be, ugh. Like, he's like, this looks really not appetizing in light of this. Sin will always overpower you when you are ungrateful. When you are living your life based on pressure and you're not grateful, oh, that's a dangerous place to live. Your character's gonna be compromised. But when you live your life under pleasure instead of under pressure, now I get to live my entire life out of the joy of being a child of God. And now it's not hard for me to overcome temptation. I delight in it because I desire God more. One of the most powerful things we could ever teach you from our stage is that we are not trying to teach you how to not sin. We are trying to teach you how to desire Jesus more than anything else in the universe. And when I start to have an intimacy with Jesus that overwhelms the opportunity to walk away from him and go over here, now I'm obeying God as I've been called to obey him, which is called delighting in him. So what do you need to do, Christian? You need to stir up your heart with gratitude again. How do you do that? Remind yourself that God's still for you, that the story isn't over, that God's still doing something new in you today. And that's where, like I said, I can't give you, well, pray, well, read the Bible, well, listen to worship music. If you don't ever learn how to relationally pursue God, you are going to succumb to temptation. The easiest way I can picture this is, is my daughter's. And I'm sorry, it's like every week he tells a story about his daughters. And yes, that's the season that I'm in. I play with my daughter who's two and a half and my other daughter who's eight months. And it's teaching me more about God than anything I've ever known before. You want to know what it's teaching me? I don't really think a lot about what, sh- what they did wrong, even though Elliot's like perfect so far. And Aniston's crazy. Um, I don't ever think about what they did yesterday. Like ever. I don't really ever think about what they're going to do with their life and how many things I want them to accomplish and how wealthy the guys are that they're going to marry. I don't really think about those things. I, <laughs> I, they're going to love Jesus. Stop. And so, you know, all I think about when I'm around them is how much I love being around them. Maybe you could just stop telling God what he's trying to tell you. Just like sit there and smile for once. And I'm, I'm emotional because I'm struggling to do this. I think God needs me to have this microphone and have a message and budgets and staff and home and this and that. And it's like I get before God and he's like, will you stop for five seconds? You are my son. I love you. And I'd like you to be quiet long enough for me to tell you that. Be with God and let pleasure be the center of your relationship with him as a son, as a daughter, not pressure. You're not a slave. You got to stir up gratitude in your heart. Number two, you got to speak out thankfulness with your mouth. This is it. Speak out thankfulness with your mouth. Two things I want to say before we give the epic conclusion to thank you, Jesus. First, This is not an exhaustive list of what it looks like for you to get healthy and get free from the brokenness that you walked into this room with. This is a place to begin. 
It will require community. It will require effort. It will require accountability. It will require some of the steps that Joseph took. I'm not saying that this is, this is how you get free. Just do this and it'll work. No, no, no. That's number one. Number two, what I'm about to say has to be under the umbrella of the qualification in Christ. And anytime I start preaching about radical grace, you'll hear me say, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are in Christ, and you're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm in Christ. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. In Christ equals gratitude. So when you read the book of Hebrews, I actually wrote a seminary paper about this. A lot of people read Hebrews, and they think that Hebrews teaches that you can lose your salvation. Hebrews does not teach that you can lose your salvation. It teaches that if you don't live a grateful life, you never had salvation. So when you read it, it's all about gratitude. Gratitude equals a changed life. So anybody who hears this message today and goes, I can keep doing whatever I want sexually, and God's not mad at me. No, no, God's very mad at you because you're not a Christian. And the wrath of God that was placed on Jesus was not for your sin because clearly you're not grateful. A grateful heart is one that goes, I want to change. And it's not even just gratitude. It's just common sense. Sin is miserable. I know it's fun for a second, but can we all just admit, especially the children of God in this room, you don't like waking up feeling that way. I don't like my mind that way. I don't like the way I act. I don't like how I respond to people. It's miserable. And so a grateful heart says, I don't want to keep living like this. I want to change. And that change isn't going to be perfect, but it is going to be progressive. So those are my two qualifications for what I'm about to say. Speak out thankfulness with your mouth. It is not enough for you to just stir up some gratitude and change your emotions. You need to open your mouth and you need to change what you have to say to God about this area of your life. I know for me, for so long, I would just ask God for forgiveness. God, will you forgive me for names, past five, sins, names, past five, encounters, names, past five, evil thoughts. If you're a child of God, you need to stop asking God for stuff you already have. Maybe you need to thank God for who you are that you don't feel like, and the more you thank him for it, the more you'll feel like it. Like maybe instead of, God, will you forgive me? You say, God, thank you that I am forgiven. Thank you that in heaven right now, there's like no record of any of my sins. You need to say stuff like that out loud. God, I feel like a slave. Okay, don't ask God to set you free. Thank him that you are free. Like, thank you that you have broken the chains. Thank you that you have provided the way. God, no, 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 I, but I feel broken. No, don't ask God to make you whole. Thank him that you've already been made whole in Christ. And what will happen? Demons will shudder and flee at someone who worships like this. There's nothing more frustrating in the universe for Satan than the children of God stomping on his head. Because what you do is you go, oh, I know I acted like that, but if it's, if it's full and complete on the cross, then I can thank God with a praise that claims these truths about me, and then all the darkness is like, oh, no, you're not whole. You're not free. Look at what you did. It was last night. Look at what you did 12 hours ago. Look at what you thought. No, no, no. What are they doing? What are they doing? What are they doing? And this is where his hands are totally tied because it's like everything that I could possibly be accused of or condemned for was done away with in full on the cross. And you start thanking Jesus in a present moment for all these realities that are yours. I t I'm telling you, the darkness goes, no, and Jesus is going, we win. This is yours. And so what do I want you to do? I want you to thank God for what you don't feel, and then maybe you're gonna start to feel it. I want you to thank God for what's true about you. 
that you haven't been acting like, and then, maybe then, it's gonna become your reality. You can put your notes away. Let's stand up all over this place. We're gonna close this service by doing something powerful, thanking God through praise. It's not an accident that in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are locked up in a prison, and the Bible says they were singing hymns and spiritual songs to God and the prison was shaken and the chains were broken. Sometimes it's not enough just to say that you're thankful to God. You got to sing it. And it is praise that breaks chains. And I believe today in this room, chains that have stood for generations are going to be broken. Would you close your eyes all over this room before we do that? If you're here today and you say, Miles, that's me today. I need to know in this moment that my chains have been broken and I'm not afraid to say it. This is a, this is a moment that's going to require boldness. But we're in a dark room. This is between you and God. I just want you to do something physical that says, God, I realize that's me. If that's you in this space, would you just lift your hand all over this space? I want to pray for you. And I know it's me. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that every hand raised is acknowledging some level of failure, but also acknowledging that we are your sons, we are your daughters. God, I thank you that you are enjoying this moment. You are enjoying the lies that are being replaced with truth. You are enjoying calling your sons and daughters home with arms open wide. And so we say thank you, Jesus. We believe that gratitude is the fulfillment on the inside that's going to cause us to not look anywhere else for our satisfaction. And so we thank you. So we praise you. So we lift songs to you, believing that what is happening in this room is shaking heaven for your glory. We love you. And we thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church. Let's sing.